Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back, awesome listeners. I'm stoked to have you all here for another episode of Work Green, Earn Green. And as you know by now, I'm Jay Tipton. Well, last week we kicked off the countrywide journey by exploring the birthplace of the United States to learn how Pennsylvania is transitioning into a greener economy while firmly holding on to its history and pride. If you didn't get a chance to listen, make sure to check it out. Just like a solar panel in Pittsburgh, your brain might feel energized by learning something new. <laughs> Corny joke. Anyway, this week I'm redirecting the ship and I'm heading south, way south, to wade around in the waters of Louisiana. And I want to emphasize the word water. As I came to find out, Louisiana is a state that has been both blessed and cursed by water. Now, I'll be the first to admit that I haven't spent much time in Louisiana. In fact, I've only been there once for a wedding in New Orleans, which is actually in the record books for the top three most fun weddings I've ever been to. Needless to say, the city of New Orleans certainly lives up to its reputation as the Big Easy, but the state is more than just New Orleans, and it's very well known throughout the U.S. for all the perks that a waterfront location can provide. For starters, it's bayous, which are full of swamps, alligators, and beautiful bald cypress trees sprouting up from the murky waters. The bayous are also a big part of Cajun culture, which is distinctly unique to Louisiana. Away from the bayous, the mighty Mississippi River shapes the state's northeastern border before it takes a turn southeast through New Orleans, where it eventually washes out into the Gulf of Mexico. It's in and around the Gulf where water serves as a blessing to the state's robust fishing and shrimping industries. The fertile waters around Louisiana have helped it develop a strong economy based around both of these activities. And of course, all those fresh hauls need to be sent across the world. Louisiana is home to five of the top 15 busiest and most productive ports in the country. Yet at the same time, Louisiana is often cursed by the very waters that give the state so much vibrant life. Everybody sees it. You can go out in your fishing camp. You see it. You see that there is water where there used to be land. Uh, Louisiana is currently losing one football field of land every 100 minutes. It used to Whoa. be every 60 minutes, so it's a little bit better. But a football field of land every 100 minutes Whoa. is the estimate. We've lost about the landmass of the size of Delaware. And so there are countries that have gone to war to protect that amount of territory. Mm -hmm. It's a big problem. That was Justin Aaronworth, president and CEO of the Water Institute of the Gulf, a nonprofit research institution. One of the many water issues Justin studies is the natural decline of the Mississippi Delta and how it's been sped up by industrial growth. Now, my point in bringing these issues up isn't to harp on the damage caused by climate change, but rather to shine a spotlight on how these problems can be viewed as opportunities for massive job creation. When it comes to Justin's line of work, he hires researchers and planners who can turn science into actionable information for decision makers. And all those jobs within the Institute are working to inform public policies that should, in turn, create even more jobs. There are certainly jobs that have been created and will continue to be in the coastal restoration sector. 
And this is everything from all the activities that you would uh, imagine in, in terms of dredging, uh, sediment, building lands, doing all the analysis to get to that point, all the regulatory work. Uh, so there's a lot of jobs to, to be created uh, and that have been uh, created in that space. Coastal restoration sounds like a major undertaking. I mean, how do you even begin to wrap your head around rebuilding land? Well, I was lucky enough to have environmental consultant Paula DePerna explain some of the details. If you're going to be restoring a swamp or re replanting wetlands, you need to know what's going to grow in there. You need to know how long it's going to take to grow. Uh, you need to know how it roots. You need to have some kind of scientific understanding of water plants and hydrology interaction with roots and things like that. That's a rather high level uh, scientific engineering physics understanding. But when it comes to putting this, the dunes together and actually planting the replacement uh, trees, presumably that wouldn't necessarily require scientific training. But coastal restoration is just one of the many water problems that Louisiana has on its plate. As I mentioned earlier, the depletion of the Mississippi Delta has been sped up by the industrial practices. And those practices are creating problems in other areas, like the availability of groundwater. As water is pumped from aquifers faster than it can be replenished, it runs the risk of saltwater intrusion. And once saltwater is introduced into a well, Louisiana residents lose a supply of clean drinking water. And that can have major economic repercussions for locals. You know, we saw in Flint, Michigan, that, you know, it's millions of dollars when the public infrastructure for drinking water collapses. So it's very important to have a, a workforce that can protect drinking water. A critical thing, I think, a point to make is you can never clean groundwater. It's impossible once it's been contaminated to the point that it can't be drinkable. To, to have contaminated water is not drinkable. It's always undrinkable. You can never make it potable again. So how can we determine when companies are drawing too much water? That question led me to Bob Jacobson, president of Bob Jacobson PELLC, a licensed engineering company in Baton Rouge. In order to manage a resource, you need to keep up with what's going on with that resource. And so there's observational information, data that's always being collected. Just about any agency that's dealing with water is going to have to collect data and they're going to need technicians. Bob is in the business of gathering and compiling the data needed to inform public policy. And the first step involves sending workers out into the field. There's a variety of different things that are used in the field. So people usually get pretty advanced training to use equipment. Maybe it's being on a boat to go out and get samples. You might need to operate a track hoe or you might need to operate a television camera that you can put into the sewer. Or you might need to operate a computer uh, in order to collect the data and log it all into the computer. Sounds like a good gig for someone who likes being outdoors. But is that enough to consider the job green? It all boils down to where the data goes and what it's being used for. In the case of Bob's company, the data feeds visualization and modeling software used to assess the risks and benefits of different water management strategies. And that calls for a whole other set of jobs, data analysts, software engineers, hydrologists. Data always comes in the office and you have all these tools to manage the large data, sort it, compile it, refine it, analyze it, you know, display it, look at it in a spatial way. And that's where models can be helpful, is they can really help you pinpoint 
oh, that's not going to be as bad a problem as you thought, or no, this is going to be a worse problem. We're going to have to do something about that. So, you know, it gets to be difficult to figure out how to do major replumbing of some place like the Mississippi River and its distributaries. So when it comes to water management, we've heard about restoration jobs, data collection jobs, and software modeling jobs. And Bob just mentioned replumbing, which brings me to Louisiana's most well-known water issues. The state's location on the Gulf puts it face-to-face with the risk of hurricane danger. And as the climate continues to change, that risk continues to grow. But, 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 we're not here to talk about the devastation of these storms. Instead, we're going to look at the silver lining, which is that each storm brings an opportunity to assess and fix what isn't working. And those fixes will call for, you guessed it, more jobs. So maybe I should call it a green lining. (laughs) Corny joke number two. In 2005, Hurricane Katrina revealed the inadequacies of New Orleans levees. As a result, $14 billion were poured into efforts to reinforce the flood walls. So when Hurricane Ida hit last year, the upgraded levee system passed the test, saving the city from another catastrophe. That's great news for New Orleans, but the storm called attention to one of Louisiana's other weak spots further down the line, its crumbling water infrastructure. Nearly 60% of Louisiana's water systems are more than 50 years old and chronically underfunded. The state ranks as having one of the worst water systems in the country. So when Ida struck, it wasn't long before the fragile pipelines of Louisiana's low-lying plains went from dysfunctional to decimated, leaving more than 600,000 residents without access to clean water. But again, we're not here to focus on the doom and gloom. When a disruption of that magnitude happens, we have to ask ourselves, what opportunities can it open up for locals? In this case, it was a huge surge in demand for green infrastructure. While most businesses in New Orleans struggled because they were tourism-based, the green infrastructure businesses exploded. And a lot of them are backed up two, three, even four years with projects. So we actually have a shortage of green infrastructure companies that know how to build green infrastructure, know how to install it, and then know how to maintain it. That was Jessica Dandridge, executive director of the Water Collaborative a nonprofit organization based in New Orleans focused on helping communities live and thrive with water. Our whole goal is to figure out how do we maximize the sector? How do we grow more jobs? How do we create more businesses, DBEs, get more people into the labor force? And so right now we're really trying to figure out what are the gaps and how do we make New Orleans the go-to place for green infrastructure work and whether that is low-skilled, high-skilled, or anywhere in between. The Water Collaborative's mission is to turn New Orleans into a global leader in green infrastructure water management. And they are accomplishing that by sharing what they've learned from each storm with the world. Louisiana actually figured out, you know, hurricanes and and natural disaster recovery after Katrina really, really well. We perfected the model and now Louisiana is the go-to for the federal government and other governments across the world on how to recover from natural disasters. And some of the skilled workforce here, whether they're in policy or skilled labor, can go and teach other people across this country and across the world. Wow, that is quite the noble cause. And it speaks to Louisiana's sense of resiliency. With each blow that Mother Nature dealt them, 
Louisianans refuse to stay down. Instead, they pick right back up and repair, restore, recover. Which leads me to my next question. Are recovery jobs green jobs? We'll discuss that right after the break. The way we work and the skills we need to do our jobs are changing fast. What do you need to know to keep up? And how do we as a society ensure everyone has an equal opportunity to succeed in today's workforce? I'm Ramona Schindelheim, Editor-in-Chief of Working Nation. Join me each week on the Work in Progress podcast as I go one-on-one with the innovators and decision makers who are helping us navigate our way through these challenges. Welcome back. Before the break, we had just gotten to the subject of one of the most well-known problems that Louisiana faces, hurricane season. Having lived in California for many years, I've experienced my fair share of natural disasters. Although in California, the culprit is often fire. I have vivid memories of waking up in the morning to see the sky painted an unnatural shade of orange and the cars in my neighborhood completely covered in ash. But even though I've lived through that countless times, I have to admit, I've never really thought about what happens after the disaster ends. Louisiana gave me a chance to find out. I spoke to Camille Manning-Broom, who is the president and CEO of the Center for Planning Excellence in Baton Rouge. Immediately after a disaster, first, you you move into getting everybody in a safe place. And so there's a lot of coordination and organization around rescuing people, getting people into shelters, and then assessing the damage. Then becomes the very lengthy process of recovery, which entails getting people shelter, getting people access to their medications, getting people resources. You know, there's just a a lot of things that have to happen. One trademark of disaster is the enormous amount of waste it leaves behind. I wanted to learn from Camille what the process of cleaning and moving all that material is like, and if that process creates an opportunity for more jobs. Think about all the tearing down and everything that the debris that goes into a landfill and then all the rebuilding. And so there's an opportunity to ensure that we make better decisions about that waste and about the materials used in the reconstruction. And there's, you know, a lot of green jobs in that market as well. Obviously, we've all heard about FEMA and the Army Corps of Engineers who usher into an area in the wake of a disaster. But what kind of jobs are available to local residents who want to help their communities recover? In order to find out, I spoke with Kendra Graves, a Louisiana native and a single mother of seven who graduated from the Deep South Center for Environmental Justice in 2020. Kendra experienced natural disasters growing up, but it wasn't until well into her adulthood that a personal water disaster made her rethink her career. I owned a trucking company, and when the trucking company ended up falling, I ended up having to go back and work at McDonald's. But I knew that wasn't all I wanted to do. So right after that, some pipes burst in my wall. And that's what made me really interested in it. Because I was like, this is a lot of work. Just from one of my pipes busting in my wall. That one pipe caused me to have over $70,000 worth of damage. 
I have a two-story home and, you know, I've never heard of water restoration. I've never heard of all that, you know, mold. I like, I've never heard of all of that type of stuff before. I actually had to go through it myself. And it just was an interest to me. And someone had showed me a flyer from Deep South. And so I was like, you know, this is exactly what I was looking for. So did Kendra find the program to be helpful? This program to me was a lifetime. It's the best thing I could have ever done. I would recommend it to anybody because it's just not a program just to try to get you a job. It actually tries to teach you a different way of living, and it did that for me. That sounds like a resounding yes to me. The Deep South Environmental Career Worker Training Program provided Kendra with not one, but eight certifications she needed to jump into the field. I got my asbestos license. They give you mold, remediation. They give you lead, abatement. You get construction. You get your OSHA. You get your hazmat, which is a really good one because that's hard to come by. Basically, your twin card, like anything that you need to set you up, basically in the industrial field, period. So I did it. I worked. It wasn't easy. It was way more than I expected it to be. But I knew what my goal was. And so I did it. I worked in the field for two years. So did all of that field work ultimately pay off? Right after Hurricane Ida, I applied for my license for the state. And it's only been a couple of months since I've been licensed. And I probably have grossed almost $150,000. And I never imagined this one program that I went through would I would be here today. Like, a person like me that comes from nothing, it'd be like, oh my God, I've never made this much money in a year. That is definitely some life-changing coin. Talk about work green, earn green, cha-ching. And it just goes to show how much opportunity can come out of a crisis. So in the wake of Hurricane Ida, what kind of jobs has Kendra been working? So since Storm, I've done about... Five or six mold jobs that include the water restoration to where we have to extract the water out of the home and have to gut the house out and have to treat it for mold. What I've learned basically is a lot of people is not educated on it, period. Like people mm-hmm. don't know how catastrophic water is. Too much water is horrible. Not enough water is horrible. So you can't have, it's like bittersweet. A lot of people that I've, try to get contracts from to try to educate them on you know you have all this water in your home you have to treat your house or you can get mold they really don't believe it with all that debris and waste removal it seems to me that a job like kendra's could go either way when it comes to being green so can contractors like kendra incorporate green skills into their business practices well we make it environmental friendly (laughs) by how we're taught and trained um, on how to remove it, make the environmental friendly. Somebody has to do the job, you know. If nobody does it, then how can we get rid of it? But the process that we're trained and taught, it, it makes it environmentally friendly to keep everybody else safe. That is super inspiring to hear. And it's pretty obvious that Kendra's training has offered her a tool belt full of valuable green skills while also helping her launch a successful green business. Plus, it's just one more example that green job training programs exist around the U.S. to help people from all backgrounds learn new proficiencies and open up doors to fruitful opportunities. 
So listeners, it is time to relive your absolute favorite part about school, a pop quiz. So what do you think? Would a disaster relief worker be considered A, a core green job, B, a green enabled job, C, a green enabling job, or D, not a green job at all? Tick, tock, tick, tock. Time's up. And the answer is after the break. Stay tuned. If you're curious about green jobs, good news. Working Nation has even more content for you to dive into. Alicia Clark here, producer of Work Green, Earn Green. And I'm excited to share that a new edition of our video series, I Want That Job, is available now. Each episode features careers that are in high demand and help save the environment, like construction managers, geologists, and some others that may surprise you. So be sure to check them out. Subscribe now to the Working Nation YouTube channel and follow the hashtag GreenJobsNow. Welcome back. So before the break, I asked you how you would classify a career in the disaster relief sector as a green job, if at all. Well, time is up and the answer is, to be honest, I don't know the answer to this one. So I decided to use a lifeline and phone a friend. Let's see what Paula DePerna has to say about this. I mean, a catastrophic storm is caused by presumably climate change. But but if you just come in for a day and go out the next day, it's it's hard to consider it green. It's just really more of a response. That's an interesting perspective. And I guess goes back to what Camille was saying earlier about drawing a distinction between relief and recovery. Now, I'm sure most of you probably shudder at the idea of pop quizzes. But as you know by now, I'm speaking to all of you in between my own classes here in Poland. So I've pretty much always got quizzes and exams on my mind. And well, that actually got me thinking about education. It took me until later in life to realize that I wanted to help save the environment. But when it comes to climate change, time is of the essence. And a motivated workforce is needed, well, yesterday. It makes me wish I had started on this path sooner. So I had to find out. What are grade schools doing to get students interested and involved sooner? That's where Sunny Dawn Summers comes in. Sunny is the founding school leader of New Harmony High School, a New Orleans charter school that opened its doors in 2018. New Harmony High was one of 10 schools awarded a $10 million grant from XQ's Super School Project, which called on educators and community leaders to rethink high school in the U.S. Sonny's background as a teacher at the New Orleans Charter Science and Mathematics High School helped her realize that students were going to be the ones inheriting the problems caused by climate change, but they were completely disengaged with the traditional beats of school. Part of the recognition that schools across the country are having is that we can't continue to do high school the way that we did high school. And the the premise of the school was really in reaction to a lot of work that's being done in Louisiana right now, specifically around coastal restoration, preservation, preservation of cultures that are being moved as climate refugees or cultures that are being disrupted um, due to storms or, or other issues that are related to climate. There was a group of people who were doing some work with the state around that resettlement and recognizing that there were very few, if any, young people that were involved in any of the work that so deeply affected these communities. So Sunny and her co-founders proposed a new type of curriculum. We talk about project-based learning, but here it's more about project and place-based learning. And I always say that where you are matters. And our students are really learning about 
their community by being active with community members and becoming stewards for their community. In order for us to continue to live in New Orleans and live in this region and and live on the coast, we have to empower the folks who live here to be able to create their own solutions. It's been a really exciting journey to watch kids go, why do we have that issue? And to like help those pieces of education intertwine together around potential solutions. So you guys have a a really strong focus on environmental and coastal issues. And why was that important to you to have that? Why do you think that's essential? Well, ultimately, if we don't do anything, this region won't exist. It's on us. Like it's too late for my generation. Yeah. If we don't involve young people, we, we will not my my son who's two and a half will not have a place to call home yeah it's it's really that. that simple like what's at yeah. stake well do you like living in new orleans do you like living do you like having this coastal region here do you like fresh seafood i mean we're like top producer of seafood in the country and people are deeply affected by things that we can in fact mitigate if we put forth effort you know there's so much opportunity for clean energy and It's almost like people think it's too much work, you know, and it has to be seen as the only option. And while New Harmony's very first class of seniors is graduating this year, Sunny has already seen the effects of her efforts. I really see not just kids, but entire families starting to implement practices of sustainability into their lives. They're starting to talk about, you know, ways to to make a better impact on even on their block. So naturally, I had to ask, does Sunny consider her job green? I guess I can see myself as a facilitator for green jobs. You know, ultimately, I don't know, man, that's a tough question. Well, even if Sunny doesn't have an answer to that question, one of her students does. Teaching at the school can be a green job because another component of that education, it means nothing if we don't educate people on how to be green in the environment. It's very important and it should intertwine with our education, you know? We need to learn as much about our home as we can. That was Mervyn Smith, a member of New Harmony's founding class of students who is now finishing up his senior year. Since coming to New Harmony, sustainability has been my biggest passion. This is not something I was always passionate about but it's slowly grown on me. And so I'm assuming it's safe to think that you probably didn't know about a a lot of environmental jobs or green jobs prior to school. To be quite honest, I I didn't know anything. I didn't know what the, I probably didn't know what sustainability was. And I feel like that's very upsetting to me that I didn't know like what climate change was. I didn't know what sea level rise was. I didn't know what green infrastructure was. I didn't know what landscape architecture was. I I didn't know any of these aspects because no one ever taught me. Wow. Yeah. So basically you've learned about a huge variety of of green jobs. I'm wondering, do you you take all of the stuff that you're learning and take your passion and go back and talk to your mom and your sisters about it? Yeah. So I was just having a conversation with my family yesterday and we were like talking about sea level rise. And it's just like always random conversations that come up. So what does Mervyn have planned for after graduation? So I got accepted into Southern University of Baton Rouge, where I will be attending college for four years to become a teacher. Um, I always had a passion for teaching. I I hope to be one of the people who educates people on um, the environment, on green infrastructure, on recycling, composting. Uh Aha. No wonder he considers teaching a green job. 
I gotta admit, gang, the concept behind New Harmony High is seriously awesome, and Mervin is an impressive young man. I wish I could speak to everyone at his school to see how their unique education has impacted their lives and communities. As I reflect from what I've learned on all my conversations in this episode, it is pretty clear that water is truly a blessing and a curse for the state of Louisiana. It provides no shortage of challenges, but it also offers opportunities to Louisianans all across the country. The storm might rock the boat, pun intended, but the people of the state remain even keeled and looking toward a clearer, brighter tomorrow. Thanks for listening to the third episode and joining me on a trip around Louisiana. I hope you all learned something new and had some fun. Be sure to join me on the next episode when I'll be heading west to the Rocky Mountain slopes of Colorado. And a sweet, friendly reminder, if you haven't already, please be sure to subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcast. Apple also allows you to leave a five-star review, so please be sure to rate and comment. I will use your feedback to help shape future episodes. And if you could kindly recommend the podcast to friends, family, or anyone else you think may find the information useful, that would be sweet. Finally, be sure to visit WorkingNation.com to find additional content on green jobs. Later days. This podcast is produced by Alicia Clark and executive produced by Melissa Panzer, Joan Lynch, and Art Bilger. It's edited and sound mixed by Linz Florin. Music is by Avocado Junkie. This podcast is made possible by the Walton Family Foundation.